Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Now, today, we are not going to be interviewing anyone. Instead, I'm going to be showing you a compilation of clips from some of the interviews that I carried out for the Investing Experts podcast on Seeking Alpha. So you guys want to go ahead and check that out. Go to Seeking Alpha, and you can uh, go to Investing Experts podcast. And basically, what they do there is something similar to what I'm doing, but exclusively uh, interviewing uh, authors on Seeking Alpha. And you know, I did a couple interviews for the Investing Access podcast. Now, this is not not something that I run myself; just something that I've been helping out with. So, in this podcast, I'm going to show you three different clips from three different interviews, starting with an interview I did. So we're going to begin by listening to an interview that I did with Zach and Garrett from Stockwaves. Now, Zach and Garrett are experts when it comes to Elliott Wave Theory. And it's very interesting because we had this conversation about a month ago. I asked them about their market outlook and basically they outlined some key resistance levels, which we are reaching today. Now, back then, their outlook was that this is kind of like a bear market rally, I believe. So the idea being that from these levels, we could go um, and revisit the lows and go even further down. Uh, I know that they also have some bullish interpretation of the charts, but back then this is what they highlighted. And it's very interesting because these are kind of the levels that I'm that we are reaching today. And of course, I do also expect that we'll see some kind of a pullback. So it's interesting to see these levels. And anyway, I'll leave you with the audio now. Right, that that makes a lot of sense, and you know, Elliott Wave is actually something that I've been uh, incorporating into my analysis as well, and that's definitely one of the uh, the strong points. Is like you say that that very clear kind of you know invalidation point, or very very clear setup. Now, you guys have talked a little bit about the idea that we're in the uh, late stages of the economic cycle. I'd love to know what your guys' outlook is for the next three six months. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, you know, a lot of uh, movement lately. With all those uh, regional banks, now we have, of course, the uh, the debt ceiling talks. I'd just love to know how we, you feel about the next three to six months. Maybe key levels that you're looking for in the in certain indexes, maybe like the S and P or the Nasdaq. It's interesting that you mentioned three to six months as the time frame because you know the way the the degree that that I think Garrett and I are viewing the market in terms of of the potential top that's forming now mm -hmm. that could be over the next few weeks that we actually form what what people would call the orthodox top but over the next three to six months we could have a move down to the 3800 region on the s p and then have a corrective bounce that basically puts us right back in this you know 4000 to 4100 region and so maybe that's forming the rounded top that really then starts to drop more precipitously from there but you know, in, when you look at it, when you zoom out on a chart, we might look like we really haven't gone anywhere over the next three months or so. Yeah. And just to add to that, again, not getting too deep into the specifics of Elliott Wave Theory, but the current expectation is that from the beginning of this bull market back in 2009, uh, that we have completed a full five wave impulsive structure off of that 2009 low into the January high that was made last year. So that initial pullback that we got off of the January high last year into the October low um, last year, and then the bounce since, has the potential to be just the start of a large degree correction. Uh, so mm -hmm. the potential for this to be a bear market rally off of that October low and um, ultimately turning back down to head below that low. 
Yeah, that's definitely like you say, three to six months. I think it'll be it'll be an interesting interesting time. So if I'm understanding you guys correctly, you do kind of see a a, a big a big um well, kind of long term top being in for the time being. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think so. And I think the the yep. risk skew is certainly to the downside. And so while you can't predict, you know, the quote unquote black swan events, you know, I think that there is certainly risk there that that something unexpected can surprise the market and 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 accelerate and act as a catalyst for you know that potential bearish move. Mm-hmm. Right. And and despite that expectation or opinion, um, we're not just blindly you know, shorting stocks. In fact, you know, we, a lot of our recent wave setups have actually been on the long side, and it is the the side of the market that I actually prefer trading most of the time uh, over shorts. It's usually just a more forgiving trade because uh, the markets trend higher over time. But we are looking for specific opportunities to to short individual stocks as well as uh, some of those sector ETFs when the opportunity presents itself. Now, in terms of actually executing um, some of these trades, uh, what is your preferred method? Do you guys like to use options? Do you just buy and sell? How do you guys go about that? Uh, personally, I, I use both options and uh, just individual shares of that stock. But as far as how we present those wave setups to our membership, we provide those specific trade parameters saying, you know, this is support, this is, uh, you know, a good entry point, this is where you should set a stop as far as invalidation, and this is our target, as well as some initial resistance that price should clear in order to, you know, provide some confirmation that that trade setup is following through. So we don't, we don't necessarily say, hey, this is uh, an option strike and an expiration that you should be buying, they can make that decision as far as how they want to trade it personally. But we provide the the parameters for that setup so they can make that decision. And I think the bottom of all of our charts certainly does have a, a, a time axis, but uh, the right side of the chart that has the price axis is what, uh, you know, as you know, James, Elliott Wave is far more accurate at predicting specific price levels. And we have a general idea of the shape of the subwave patterns that, that the bigger move that we're projecting should take. And we can use some other tools in terms of Fibonacci fans and, and other kind of timing methods to get an approximate idea of timing. But you know, it, it can be one of the most frustrating things in the world to get the exact move correct, but to have been a little bit off on your options timing and, and have that mm-hmm. not trade play out as, as successfully. So you know, I think options add a, a whole nother degree of complexity that people really need to understand separate from from just what the the stock should be doing the under or whatever underlying instrument that it is so and we try and we also you know because we have such a diverse population of of members that we're presenting our analysis to we try and structure it in a way that it can that many people can apply it to their their own methods of of trading all right well i hope you enjoyed that conversation now moving on to the next clip, we have an extract from the interview that I did with Mike Zakadi, also a Seeking Alpha contributor. And in this clip, we talked a little bit about uh, the rally in tech. Now this was again also a while ago uh, when you know tech was beginning to rally. So we talked a little bit about the outlook for tech. Uh, we talked about AI and also kind of um, you know what Mike was thinking about in terms of the uh, breadth of the market, in terms of sector rotation. So this is quite interesting because we have definitely seen that narrative play out at least in the last two, three weeks. 
And of course, something that I've been looking at uh, for a while now, calling for that outperformance in the uh, smaller caps. So with that said, I'm going to leave you with this extract from the interview. All right, that, that's definitely the right approach in my mind. I also like to... Uh, you know, lean lean heavily on fundamentals, but also quite uh, do quite a lot of technical analysis as well. And I have my own marketplace, the pragmatic investor, and you know, the pragmatic investors. You know, the investor that is is able to not judge, you know, everything by a single kind of mentality, but be open to all those kind of different different views, different different approaches, and understand that you know, like you say, the stock market is is a complex thing, and like like you put very well, you've got to you've got to check your ego at the door. So. We've talked a lot about kind of the uh, the macro outlook. Obviously, tech stocks very hot right now. On the other hand, we have some sectors that maybe have been beaten down. Me personally, I think we could look at those and maybe find some good opportunities. Uh, commodities, like you said, peaked uh, a while ago and they've come down substantially. Of course, financials. Are there any sectors in particular that you're looking at uh, for the next few months that you think uh, could offer some some value? Yeah, well, let's let's take a look at that. So obviously, this year um, has been kind of the big three that we've kind of come accustomed to: tech, uh, com services, and uh, discretionary. Of course, you know you back out Tesla and Amazon from discretionary, and uh, that sector doesn't look uh, quite as good. What I have noticed in a few charts lately, and this is kind of controversial, but in the regional banking space, you know, we see some decent signs of a possible bottom there, and just in some divergence numbers uh technically fundamentally we still see very low valuations in financials and energy utilities have kind of pulled back on their valuation a bit healthcare has had a kind of a weird year they had like that massive string of negative weeks but then we saw a resurgence in uh lily with and then some flight to quality stuff with j and j that helped the sector but in general you know you look away from uh, you know, those uh, big five or so S&P stocks you mentioned earlier. And the market is uh, pretty lousy this year, you know, roughly flat. When you look at the Russell 1000 equal weight, uh, S&P 500 equal weight, Russell 2000, you know, cap weighted. So yeah, there's just a lot of stuff not working right now. But, you know, the good news is earnings estimates are, are starting to come. It looks like come a little bit higher. We've seen some major sell side areas lift their 23 EPS forecasts for the S&P 500. And we've seen, you know, current year EPS estimates kind of flatten out here to 20, you know, give or take a few bucks. And then looking looking into the out year, um, looking more like 240 or 245. And that too is held steady. So all those dire calls from skeptics earlier this year that S&P 500 earnings would have to come way, way down. That That's just not materializing. We're not seeing that. And with the, the latest automation push and AI potentially driving uh, or at least sustaining margins where they are, I think we could definitely see upside earnings estimates this year. Uh, what that does to next year is hard to say. But you know, if you throw you know an 18 multiple on 240 of earnings for next year, you know, the market isn't overly pricey here and critics may cast shade on an 18 multiple. But the fact is, uh, earnings multiples have trended higher over time. The U.S. market is more dominated by higher growth, higher margin sectors today versus previous decades and relative to the rest of the world. So in my opinion, a valuation premium is warranted. 
So yeah, I see the overall market is is kind of fairly priced here. But I, you know, like the crowd, I was thinking at times last year that a deeper valuation reset was needed. Um, and maybe we got that in October. You know, at the October low, the market was trading around, I think, 14, 15 times. I mean, that's not trough level in terms of bear market multiples, but it was definitely a healthy pullback from 20 plus that we saw in 21 in 2021. Um, in terms of sectors, though. Boy, it's hard to be fighting this trend in tech. You know, you can look at some things such as relative outperformance gaps uh, to try and spot when things get too frothy from a sector perspective against the market. But yeah, it's it's uh, it really is kind of that 2020 theme right now, or of those big mega cap tech stocks just powering higher and. You know, we need to see signs that other sectors participate before you really want to start rolling dice, getting overweight, some value areas. And we're just not seeing that yet. Uh, so if we start to see uh, more new highs, for example, in uh, the value sectors, that would be helpful. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it looks like this gravy train of of the major tech stocks powering the markets higher uh, is going to keep going. So yeah, no real big insights onto sector overweights here. It's just kind of more the same, you know, it feels like. Right. Now, I know investors would be very disappointed if we didn't very quickly uh, cover the uh, recent earnings of NVIDIA. We've talked a little bit about AI. I know that I've seen a very uh, infamous kind of, um, I believe it was from an earnings call back in 99 before the dot-com crash, where NVIDIA was trading at an outrageous price to sales uh, multiple and uh, you had the uh, the CEO come out and say, well, what did you expect? You know, you, and he kind of breaks it down and says, look, for this to make you money, you, you would have to you know, increase revenues for the next 10 years. So we have um, companies like NVIDIA now, obviously, I believe just broke one uh, trillion market cap, trading at very high valuation. I'd love to know your take, maybe fundamentally, although at this point, maybe fundamentals don't matter so much, maybe on a technical aspect as well. What are your thoughts are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely a whopper of a quarter there from NVIDIA, jacking up the next quarter's revenues by, you know, whatever, 40% up to some ridiculous numbers. So their growth uh, trajectory has certainly uh, changed, which is no surprise. And now we see the stock trading, I think, something like, you know, 60 plus times earnings and the sales multiple extremely high. So, yeah, but we're seeing follow through in the stock. You know, we saw that big gap up last week to 380 or so and now we're uh and now it's in the trillion dollar club with a share price of about 400 um lifting a lot of other ai related stocks with it so yeah uh definitely has that frothy feeling out there uh in terms of the ai trade um at the same time though like no one was really talking about this six months ago so it's pretty remarkable how quickly things have evolved and you know, the next quarterly, next set of uh, earnings reports are going to be interesting to see if the if the hype is backed up by actual growth in uh, sales and earnings among uh, other companies. And also, what I think is going to be interesting is to see how firms like Microsoft and Google handle this, because of course, a lot of these big tech companies may have to upgrade a lot of their hardware and software to account for for AI. So that could be a boon for uh, chip makers like NVIDIA. Uh, but if that requires heavy capex spending, you know that could impact profits a little bit with some of these uh, other players. But I would also encourage investors to think about bigger impacts from this. Something I've been writing about a little bit has been the 
the positive impact it could have on small and mid-cap stocks. Because once we get past all these big companies and their breakthroughs, at some point, it's going to trickle down to efficiency improvements at the lower end and smaller businesses. And if you consider how important small and mid-sized businesses are for uh, overall GDP growth of America and really the global, the globe writ large, if they can benefit from that, which I think they will, as products become specialized and tailored towards those enterprises, we could definitely see a lift up in some of those small and mid-cap names over time. So that'll be an interesting trend over the next couple of years to to look at. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm no futurist, but it's, it definitely looks as if AI is going to have some uh, extremely positive impacts for corporate profitability. And, you know, when it comes to the labor market with this sort of thing, there's always fears that uh, we're, we'll see, you know, automation will take away from from jobs. But, you know, the fact is, history shows that you get these breakthroughs, it, it creates new jobs that we didn't even know about. Could this be the outlier that changes everything? Oh, maybe. But uh, if you look at all the data points in history, you know, this is things like this are a benefit to society and jobs and how the construct of the job of the labor market is uh, and not a, not a hurt to it. So I'm excited for the future. It, yeah, it certainly is scary to think about some of what could happen, but you have to sort of trust uh, the long term trend in a sense that these uh, technology wins um, benefit, you know, just about everyone. Yeah, that, that, that is definitely a, an interesting point. But to be fair, we have had kind of hypes like this before, right? I mean, AI now is the topic du jour, but, you know, in the past, we've had other big narratives that have driven what's now, in hindsight, you know, after this market correction, you might call a bubble. One of these bubbles, of course, was uh, crypto and NFTs and that kind of space. Now, I'm obviously very interested in crypto. I talk a lot about Bitcoin to my subscribers and on Seeking Alpha. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on Bitcoin and perhaps the broader crypto market and maybe blockchain technology. So once again, I hope you enjoyed that clip. And of course, if you want to listen to the whole interview, you can go ahead and check out the links on the description to listen to the full interview on the Investing Experts podcast. Now to wrap up, I'd like to leave you with an extract from a debate on Tesla that I did on the Investing Expert podcast. So I was defending the bull thesis for Tesla and my fellow essay contributor, Anton Woolman, was on the bear side of the conversation. Now, this was around the time that Tesla had just signed those deals with GM and Ford to allow them to use their supercharging network, which of course kind of, you know, saw the stock rise, but there was a lot of controversy around this. And in this extract, Anton tells us a little bit about why he feels that this is not a bullish thing for Tesla. And once again, if you want to go ahead and listen to the full interview, you can do so clicking the link on the description. I think we should go back in time a little bit to look at the history of how these charging networks developed and, and the standards that went into them. Going back to about 2010, 2011, that was when Tesla proposed their uh, their version of a new standard, which is that connector that we all see at the Tesla supercharger. It's a very, very elegant connector that combines both AC and DC charging in a very... Um, light, narrow cable that uh, I think everybody will 
agree is a fundamentally more customer-friendly connector. It's sort of like comparing USB versus some other previous flavor of USB, like a USB-A. It's just simply smaller and a little bit easier to handle. And um, the rest of the industry, however, decided to go with uh, two different other standards that subsequently have really whittled down to one. It's called CCS, Combined Charging Standard, that really combines an AC and a DC, but they don't sit inside each other. They sit essentially on top of each other so that that makes for a very clunky connector. When you go to one of these CCS chargers, you will see that it's a pretty pretty fat piece, basically, that you have to stick into the car. In and of itself, it's uh, it functions just fine. It's just a bit ugly when you think about it. And it functions a little bit different in the European version thereof uh, than the U.S. one. But nevertheless, this went on for the last few years, and most automakers standardized on this. And now uh, what happened here in early May was that Ford decided that, you know what, um, starting in 2025, uh, we're going to put the uh, Tesla connector on our electric vehicles. They didn't explicitly say, and neither did GM, that they were going to abandon their old CCS connectors. So in theory, one might at least suspect that maybe they will keep the other one also. I don't think they will at all. I think that they will get rid of the old CCS, but they never said so explicitly. So that at least, at least leaves the possibility open there. But uh, we also have to look here at the differences between the North American market and the European market. In the European market, for those of us who travel around frequently in Europe, we see that uh, a large chunk of the cars uh, already today that charge at Tesla superchargers are non-Teslas. So in Europe, they've had these adapters that people are using uh, because it essentially became the law in Europe that all the other automakers have the right to charge at Tesla superchargers. So what is being implemented here in a slightly different way in the U.S. slash North American market um, has already been enforced as a practical matter in Europe. And even so, in the U.S., you can already today, you could have had for the last year, I mean, I have friends who afford F-150 Lightnings and so forth. They've been charging from Tesla superchargers for a year already. All you got to do is to buy an adapter. And so this has been working, but who wants to buy adapter, basically? You know, they're, 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 there's a subset of the market that wants um, to carry an adapter around and fiddle around with it. All of the things equal, you want to get rid of it. But it's there. And so this thing has been possible. All you needed to do is to essentially download the Tesla app and create an account, and then you were charging. And people were doing it, but most people weren't even aware of it. So part of what GM and Ford have done here, and I assume all automakers are going to be announcing at some point within you know the near future, um, is to make also raise consumer awareness that they can take whatever cars to charge them at Tesla superchargers. Mind you, however, that it also works the other way around. So until now, there had been very little incentive for all, the, all of these other charging networks. Uh, we all know several of them that, you know, there are Blink, ChargePoint, you go down the list, all of these other charging networks, uh, independent ones that are smaller, that aren't public, they, they, they had had very little incentive to install the Tesla connector, which they have been have, have had the right to do for a long time, because this is, after all, a standard. Tesla cannot charge money for a standard. So they can do this, but they haven't done so in the past, because at the end of the day, if you're a small fish 
and you're going to tangle with a large player that um, you know sort of controls the rest of the network, you're probably going to stay away from it. But now that Ford and GM and soon all the other automakers have bust the doors open to this, I think we're, we already saw announcements uh, a week or two ago from some of these networks that they're going to start, start installing these uh, um, Tesla connectors at their charters. So from the calculation, just strictly monetarily in terms of the charging revenue of other cars, say a Ford or a GM or soon everybody else, uh, charging at Tesla superchargers, you will also have to subtract all of the Tesla owners that are going to be charging at non-superchargers in the future that they weren't doing thus far. So, you know, I it's not clear to me that is, this is going to be a net benefit, even in that calculation uh, for Tesla, because in the U.S. market, Tesla has, they're, they're by far their largest market share. It's like well over 50% of all EVs sold today, 60, whatever, 62, 65% of the market are Tesla so far. So, you know, if a certain portion of those 65% start charging at non-Tesla chargers where they weren't doing so before, that could end up being, we don't know, but it could end up being as large or a larger number than those of the minority EVs, the other 35, 40% that now in the future will start charging at Tesla superchargers. I had a question. I, I was wondering in terms then, so your thesis here is that because Tesla owners are going to be charging at other stations, what kind of um, infrastructure is in place right now? So we know, for example, there's about 40,000 superchargers out there. What is the competing infrastructure out there then? Do you have any idea on the numbers for that? You know, I don't have them in front of me, but it's it's a, it's a you know it's a number that is not too different from the Tesla superchargers. If you look at the number of DC chargers that are out there and so forth, the difference is that thus far, Tesla's had the best chargers, and the the best in the sense that they've been maintained the best. If you go to some of these stations along the freeways, for those of us who have owned Teslas and driven them and compared them with other vehicles, it is clear to me that Tesla's had the best charging network, not just because of the speed of the actual connector or any of those things, but the, the biggest thing has frankly been reliability. And the reliability of many of these other networks has been poor. You show up at one of these networks and for whatever reason, they don't function. You have to, you know, their app doesn't work, their car doesn't work, uh, this thing is just down, or there has been some physical impairment along the way that, um, that basically... Um, hasn't been maintained. This, I can, I can, there are chargers that I've seen over the years that have been sitting there broken for, forget weeks, some of them going into the months. So what Tesla's done very well is that they've maintained their charging stations very well, and their re reliability in terms of just plug and play has been very, very good. And that's been their advantage. It's not so much that they have more chargers than the rest, the other uh, companies, when you combine them, they have um, roughly a similar number, but the reliability just has been poor. And now this combined charging standard, so to speak, not, not, not in terms of the actual name of the standard being implemented, but the one that Tesla has been using exclusively before, and now everybody will be using, I think will uh, put the feet under the fire um, uh, and uh, uh, really even out some of these reliability concerns across the board. So I think that to the extent that this was an advantage for Tesla in the past, and I believe I've been saying since 2013 that uh, the charging network and its reliability 
has been Tesla's number one differentiator. That that was the, you know especially the last couple of years when heavy competition has come onto the market with uh, lots of cars with more than 250 miles of range. Uh, I think that this has been the number one reason by far that customers would buy a Tesla over another brand. And now with this advantage uh, being reduced quite considerably, uh, I think that this will really threaten Tesla's ability to sell cars on the margin. And we see it to some extent in Europe. I mean, Tesla's market share in Europe, uh, whatever the last few months, I mean, we're talking uh, market share numbers that are way, way, way below what they are in the U.S. And we can argue as to whether um, the fact that Europe has already opened up Tesla's charging network has, has had a has been a main reason for that or not. But I think that going forward, certainly in the U.S., I mean, U.S. is a different driving pattern than Europe. In U.S., people do use superchargers a little bit more for long-distance travel, whereas in Europe, they use chargers more for, you know, people who live in apartment buildings and they charge. They literally, in Europe, they have more chargers deployed on the streets, like at uh, where the parking meters are and so forth. You, you know, you go walk up and down the streets of Paris or Stockholm or whatever, and you see tons of these things, whereas in the U.S., cities. You're not you're not going to see many of those. Um, so I think that when this now evens out, I, I think that this will uh, reduce the propensity of people to buy a Tesla versus another brand because really the charging network is no longer a factor in your purchase decision going forward. Once again, everyone, thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, and so much more.